If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to have been among uh, those early Jews to whom the gospel came. Uh, they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they had uh, gathered together into churches, various churches that were being planted, uh, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and working its way into the remotest parts of the earth. And you're gathered together and there was not only a common confession and hope and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a, a comfortable, common ethnicity, a common uh, convictions about uh, what to eat and what to celebrate and uh, all of these things. And then one day a, a Gentile shows up and another Gentile and another family comes in and they say, we believe that your Jesus prophesied in your scriptures is indeed the son of the living God and we have put our hope and our trust in him and we have been baptized and now we come to join your assembly. And you can imagine the conversation might one day be around the table. So, uh, Bill, when did you get circumcised? Oh, I'm not circumcised. <coughs> and what is this food you brought, this tasty food you brought to our house for the uh, entree? Bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> and suddenly, what had been a, a very unified, peaceful setting is set in turmoil. That's something of the background uh, to this application section in the book of Romans. And this had brought about great consternation in the church. In fact, we read in uh, verse uh, 10, why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? And that these issues of food and drink, meat and drink, had become for some an issue of contempt toward those who differed and for others a matter of judgment. And why do we do that? Why is it that we have that capacity, even as believers who have been shown so much grace, to show contempt for a brother or sister, or to judge a brother or sister who doesn't agree with us. And Paul's going to give a series of truths and exhortations to help the church there in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, to live together and to love one another well. And as he does so, he touches upon some of the most important issues uh, in our faith. So he says again in verse 10, but why do you Judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, do help us and aid us not only to understand the times in which this passage was written and the matters that affected and afflicted the church in Rome 2,000 years ago, but, Father, the great relevance of such truths for ourselves as we gather in a very different place in a very different time. Aid us, Heavenly Father, to have the heart toward one another that bespeaks the truth of the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom who died for his people. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. Now, the passage before us, not just the passage read, but what has come before and even what comes after, is filled with a series of Holy Spirit-inspired exhortations regarding life together in the body of Christ. Now, again, the background of these exhortations has to do with something wonderful but new that was happening in redemptive history the conversion of the Gentiles and their inclusion into what had been an exclusively ethnic Jewish church. Now, so much was this a controversy that it uh, brought about a council that was held in Jerusalem in which certain of these matters were hammered out and then the apostles and elders sent those conclusions to the churches. The inclusion of Gentiles raised not only theological issues related to justification by faith and the place of the law, especially the dietary law, but a host of practical issues that came with it. And the particular questions raised in the text may not be front burner for many of us today. Should we have a kosher diet or not? I don't know how many of you have ever tossed and turned over that issue. But the heart of what's being said and the exhortations that are being given are relevant to every church and every generation, and certainly they are relevant for us in our own assembly. What do you do when your convictions, rooted in your understanding of the Bible, are different than the convictional conclusions of others? Can you love one another, serve one another, be at peace with one another, and worship together when that is the case? Can you love one another, and can you worship together are two different questions. And they may, according to the conviction, require a different answer. We may love one another even if those convictions mean that we cannot necessarily worship in the same place? That's another uh, question for another time. But the question before us is, what do these convictional differences mean for your conscience and for theirs and how we view them when they are not in the same place where we are? 
And so this issue of the conscience and its effect on convictions and practices is what is at the forefront of the passage we come to study this morning. And as we do so, I want to consider it under three headings. I want to consider, first of all, the tension that is stated. We want to consider the, uh, what is at stake or the stakes presented, and then we'll conclude by looking at a needed mindset. But consider, first of all, the tension stated. Now, if you go back earlier in the context, and Paul is talking about those who are weak and those who are strong, those who are able to eat whatever is put before them without qualms of conscience, and those who cannot. Some are weak, some are strong. Those who are strong can eat the meat, and those who are weak will eat only, as he states it, the vegetables. These issues of meat and drink, again, for us, may seem a part of a quainter time. Wouldn't that be nice if that's the only thing that we had to deal with? But you understand that this was a very contentious issue that had brought about this judgment and condemnation among brothers, brothers and sisters judging each other, speaking of each other uh, harshly, belittling one another, assuming all the different things that were going on. The very basics of what, what, I mean, what is more basic than daily sustenance? All of us need to eat, and there will be times if we are brethren that we are going to eat together, and yet even here we need to think about one another and consider one another in order that we may live with one another in a way that honors the work of God in our lives. Now the matter of food and drink, interestingly in life, it, it, we're going to touch on this passage briefly later today, uh, is one of the matters that Paul brings out about whether you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We quote that text out of context, and it is a broad enough text that we can do that, but it comes in a context very similar to this context. And the issue of eating and drinking is more than I like the way that it tastes or I like what it does for my pocketbook. If I'm going to do it for the honor and glory of God, part of the honor and glory of God is considering the consciences of others. That is the context of that statement. But you see that the matter of food and drink becomes weighty. It's a matter of the glory of God. And it's actually a matter of the peace of the church. It's a matter of whether we are going to walk in love or walk in criticism toward one another. Now the tension arises, and we've already stated this, when two brothers or two sisters come to different practical conclusions based on their understanding of the scriptures, and as a result of their understanding of the scriptures, or their lack of understanding, their conscience is gripped in a certain practice and at times is gripped in such a way that someone says not only is this right for me and my house that I cannot understand how any Christian could differ how could anybody read the Bible and not see what I've seen you ever said that did you say it maybe this past week did you think it this past week how can anybody who knows the Bible, how can anybody who knows Jesus not think the way I think about this particular issue? Now, Paul does weigh in, in this case, on the ultimate biblical reality. 
I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in and of itself. That's what the Bible teaches. Nothing that God has made is now, and here's the issue, under the new covenant to be broken into categories of clean and unclean. Now, it might go under the category of healthy and unhealthy or uh, gut rumbling or not gut rumbling uh, leading to IBS or not, you know, whatever. You can break it down into a host of other things. But the long list of such foods listed in the law have been fulfilled. They have served their place in redemptive history because our Lord taught and Mark tells us that the conclusion of what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7 regarding what goes into the belly and is eliminated, he says that he therefore declared all foods to be purified or to be clean. Now, Paul knew that text, and he understood the ramifications of the new covenant and its greatness and superiority over the old and the effect that it had under this temporary ordinance of what was to be eaten and not to be eaten. And now, a proper understanding, which some had come to, was that because no food is off limits from a religious or God-pleasing way that I am free to eat and drink these things, I don't have to, but I can. And if I want to, in certain settings, I can eat it and give thanks to God for it, and I am not sinning in any way. Again, you may not want to eat, or you, know, you may want to eat or you may want to avoid a certain food, I should say. You may want to eat or may want to avoid a certain food for the sake of health. And perhaps at times with a degree of conscience. There's a food that I won't eat out of conscience. Because while you know, some of you would say you're a really hypocrite, I have no problem eating a the meat of, of certain animals when it is slaughtered in a certain way, I do have trouble with the way, I'll say it, veal. You know, what's he talking about? I have problems with the way veal is, I think it's cruel. I think it's unnecessarily cruel. Now, if you like it, I'm not saying you can't eat it, but when I understood how it was made, I felt in light of certain things that I understand in God's word that that meat is harvested in an unusually cruel way, to my mind. Now, my mom's meatballs, which are the best meatballs in the world, apparently contain some veal in it, so I guess sometimes I've had it without really knowing or thinking about it. But again, I don't believe that any, I don't believe my mom or anybody else is sinning, and I don't believe that I would be sinning in the fullest sense of the term. It's just something I'm not comfortable with, something I prefer not to do. I'm not transgressing the law of God necessarily or failing to conform to it by eating or not eating. There are things which are matters of indifference. Not everything is in the category of black and white. Now, ultimately, it's the black and white that determines what's indifferent, right? <laughs> they may matter to you, they may alter what you do or don't do, but they are not, in the final analysis, a matter 
of divine revelation unto the end that they should be preached and proclaimed from the pulpit and pressed upon the consciences of all of God's people that all of us are going to act in this way. Not when you properly understand and apply the word of God. We are forbidden to lay burdens on God's people that God has not laid. Pharisees did that. We cannot do that. But again, what happens when someone who may embrace the overall theology of things commanded and things indifferent has a different understanding and a different interpretation which leads them to having a difference of conscience? And so for them, a thing that is not objectively unclean, for them, it is unclean. And for them to participate in it and to eat in it and to violate their conscience would lead them into, as we will see now in a moment, a very bad way. Now, they are wrongly ultimately interpreting. And what they ought to be able to say is not that this now becomes a matter of conscience, because if I understood that Jesus had pronounced all of these things to be clean... And you say, well, I still prefer my old diet. That's fine. And in my house, we're going to have a kosher diet. That's fine. But to believe that I am violating the law of God and that others are violating the law of God, that becomes the matter of conscience. I believe I would be sinning to do this. That's where their conscience is for now. And the tension comes, how do I live with this person who's... who I understand now, this is where their conscience is. Their conscience is bound to this thing. How do I treat them? How do you, as one convinced otherwise, deal with the practice and the conscience of the one who differs? All right, so that's that's the tension. I hope that's clear. But now I want to consider the stakes set forth. This is really amazing in this passage. This is a section of the passage that I I think is rather stunning in regard to Paul's burden and Paul's concerns for what can happen when a church gets this wrong. What's at stake, on the one hand, when you yield to the temptation to join the crowd, even though it's against your conscience, or what's at stake when you pressure someone to violate their conscience. Well, again, the bigger issue at stake, as has already been said, is that Paul is fearful that in this, what's going to happen in the church is that one quarter is going to judge another and the other is going to condemn the other. That that's what's going to happen. So that rather than the body of Christ being at peace and walking together and loving each other and caring for each other and bearing each other's burdens and understanding each other and being patient with one another, it becomes a place of condemnation, busybodies looking at and trying to get everybody on the same page that you're on, not for their sake, but for your sake. So what happens again when you pressure someone to go against their conscience so that you can do what you want to do, because isn't that what liberty is all about? In the point of liberty, I can do this, therefore I'm going to do this regardless. Isn't that the Bible? No, it's not the Bible's doctrine of liberty. Now, three things are set forth by way of these high stakes. Verse 13 
speaks of putting a stumbling block or causing a brother to fall. Romans chapter 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. That's one. Verse 15 brings out two more. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Thirdly, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Those are very high stakes. And the language seems to escalate. Your brother or sister is made to stumble, hence to fall. They are grieved, and they can potentially be destroyed. Now you'll see here, as Paul is making this point, that he is also reemphasizing a previous point, and that is part of the way that we are to view those who differ. Not in judgment and condemnation. You're a Pharisee. You're a worldling. You don't care about what God says. Well, you don't understand grace. and You don't understand duty. All this kind of stuff. you got to remind yourself, ultimately, over these things, and we'll get into some of this more in a moment, he's your brother, she's your sister. Resolve you're not going to lay a snare in front of your brother. Or your sister, that that language, your brother, your sister, should be weighty to you. Do you want to place a snare before them? Do you want to grieve them? Not only are they a brother or sister, but they are one for whom Christ died. And if Christ died for them, then he deems them his treasure. And will you, for the sake of your ease and for the sake of winning the argument, treat them with such contempt or treat their conscience as such a light thing that you would risk destroying them? Now, let's break these down. The term stumbling block is is the word, again, some of you are going to know this, uh, scandal on. One of the things said about the cross, it's a scandal, scandal on. And what the scandal on was in the ancient world, it was the, the stick that you would put up on a trap. You've seen these kinds of things where there'll be a, uh, some kind of a netting laid up or a woven basket, and there'll be a stick there, and you uh, either have a string on the stick or the, you put some food in, the animal comes and eats the food and knocks the stick, and the trap comes down, the, that, that stick essentially is the scandaling, uh, is the scandal. It's the, it's the means of entrapping. And again, what's the purpose? If we take more literally a stumbling block, you put a stumbling block in somebody's way, it's for somebody to trip. It's for somebody to fall. It's for somebody to be captured. And, and, and under what end did you capture these things? Well, so they can be eaten. That is done away with. And the apostle says, resolve this, determine this, whatever else you do, however else you handle these potentially very volatile discussions. As you're talking to someone and you see the temperature rising and and they're making an argument and you don't like their argument and and you you got to win. And you realize that you are affecting them in a way that this isn't wise right now. You might be able to withdraw and come back to it. You might be able to, 
when things are more peaceable to make a different argument, but you're, but you're being resolved here that what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk in love toward this brother or sister. I don't want them to stumble. I don't want them to fall. I don't want them to harden their conscience. And I don't want them to be so offended in my dealing with them that they struggle with being in the same church with me and perhaps forsake the gathering of the saints because they know if I come to that place, people are just going to corner me and they're going to berate me and they're going to try to get me to change over a thing ultimately indifferent. They don't have to eat this other stuff. It's not a matter of duty, not a matter of law. And then he says that your brother or sister would be grieved to be made sorrowful, to cast them down, again to offend, and over what? Meat. Now, I like meat. I, I really, I really do. And I like certain kinds of meat more than other kinds of meat. But what if for the sake of somebody else and walking in love, and what if for the sake of the gospel, what was pleasurable to me became such a source of grief or a stumbling stone to another? Giving up a pleasure is not the same as giving up a duty. If it is a matter of liberty... Therefore, it can become something I do or do not do. I don't eat meat. I mentioned to some in Sunday school, we got invited to a house last night, walked in, and there were, I think there were ribeyes out there that he had seasoned and was about to take out to the, to the smoker. It wasn't like, good, now I can obey God. Thank you for making that meat so I can obey God. No, it's not a... Now, he can be thanked and honored with the meat or thanked and honored if it were vegetables and grains, particularly if those grains were in the form of pasta or something like that. <laughs> it's a matter of freedom or liberty. But if I, if I insist on my own happiness, you see, that's when liberty becomes not liberty but bondage. Would I rather satisfy my flesh with what is allowable or honor, I should say, allowable but not a duty? Allowable but not necessary. That's what liberty is. Would I rather satisfy my flesh with what is allowable or will I honor the conscience of my brother or sister, which is a matter of duty. The apostle tells us what conclusion he reached. Remember? If meat causes my brother to sin, what does he say? Too bad. Remember that? He said, too bad for them. No. He says, if that's what happened, I'll never eat meat again. That brother or sister matters more than my taste buds. I don't have to eat meat I do have to love him. I will not view them or treat them or speak of them with contempt. Guess what I'm not eating today? 
Yeah, well, I'm going to go to Daryl's house. And Daryl has this thing about this meat. And it gets him all upset. We get into arguments and he, you know, whatever, you know. No, we don't have to do that. And even if their conscience is bound right now by something that it, it ought not to be, if for them it's a matter of conscience, hence it becomes a matter of sin, and as long as that remains the case, I will temper my liberty for them. Now, I am not saying everything that could be said. I recognize this raises certain questions. Please, follow along. Now, what's at stake is not just offending or grieving or their stumbling or falling in some way, as bad as that is. Paul says, will you, for the sake of your food, destroy the one for whom Christ died? All right, theology class, have at it. Because that raises some very interesting theological questions, doesn't it? But this word destroy is a very powerful word. It's a word that's used perhaps most famously in John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish, should not be destroyed, but have eternal life. That's the word that's used there. The word destroy as Jesus uses it in John's gospel, has to do with their being destroyed eternally. Is it possible that some in the church would behave toward one for whom Christ died in such a way that it destroys their faith or leads them on the road to apostasy? That's, that's what's being brought out. Now, I will say and I must say, as we deal with this issue, those for whom Christ died, I do need to say something, but I don't want to lessen the impact of what is being said. We believe in a doctrine of particular atonement, and we could demonstrate that. It's not my point this morning to prove that, and we believe that if Jesus died for someone that that someone will have their sins forgiven and that one cannot perish. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. We believe that. But something is being said here that we cannot and we must not ignore. There is a pressure being placed upon our heart and conscience by the Holy Spirit that we need to heed. And that is this, that my actions or inactions, my love or lack of love, my selfishness or selflessness has a profound impact on the faith and well-being and thriving of others. In a body, we cannot ignore this. Your life affects others. Your attitude and there's something about this that has, is, is so profound that I, I, don't under, I don't understand it other than to say that I have heard it and I experience it. That for some to withhold this kind of love and to treat others with contempt 
It might be only one person or two people in a church where we have over 100 members. But those who depart because they're so grieved, because they're stumbling, will very often say, that church doesn't love me. And the actions of a few paint the whole body in a negative light. One member or a series of members in a particular church can destroy a church and its witness through a lack of love. One of the great reasons why people leave not only a church and go to another church, but leave, as it were, the church, is due at times, at least in its initial aspect, is due to this very thing. Now, I know that that can be abused. And somebody can say, are we to allow the weak to hold the strong hostage? That's not what's being said. In fact, it's not even an attitude. I mean, again, what do we say? Hold me hostage. That's judging and contempt. Well, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying so know one another, so love one another, so be patient with with one another, so walk in love toward one another, so be uh, sensitive to one another to know that my, my conversation is wounding, not helping. Again, I know it can be abused, that's not the... But that's not the point of this. You know, Paul's not saying, now Paul's not saying, now I know this can be abused. He's stating this in very stark, powerful language, isn't he? Because the issue is not about them, it's about you. That's who he's talking to. Don't worry about how they handle your love. Well, if I'm loving and patient to them, they're just going to be stupid all their lives. Well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about how they respond to you being gracious. Don't worry how, you, how they respond to your love and patience. Don't worry about that. Because what Paul is addressing is the reality that, that we can be so wed to our liberty that we must enjoy it, even if we enjoy it, at the expense of others. And the question of the text is, is that how love acts? No, because love does not seek its own by definition. He's saying to us, to all of us, you're not to judge another. You're not to condemn another, but rather to fulfill the law through love. All right, now to help in this, Paul says, all right, let me give you some fundamental theology. I'm going to remind you of certain things. So this matter, we come now to the proper mindset commanded. This proper mindset is scattered throughout the passage. And we've talked about some of it. So sometimes he reminds them, you know, this is your brother or sister. Right? Are they in Christ despite where they are with their immature in this? They don't understand this. Maybe they came out of whatever it is. Fundamentalism came out of this. It came out of that. And, 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 and they're very particular about certain things. And okay, all right, understand, understand where you are. Understand this where your conscience is. You understand 
not everybody agrees with you and in, in, in all but but you're saying brother brother sister you are reminding yourself in this that we are part of the family of God you're my brother not my enemy you're my sister not my project that I'm going to try to fix we're family and then he brings out the reality that we're that we're servants who are you to judge the servant of another they're not your servant they're not at your beck and command. They're at the beck and command of Jesus. And Jesus may be doing something in them at a different rate and a different time than you like. Lord, I want you to deal with this in them now. And the Lord says, well, I'd rather deal with that in them later because I'm going to work this grace in them. And if they continue to hold to a matter of indifference and their conscience is bound, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with them. Let me... Let me, let the word, let growth, let grace have its part. Remember, friend, he says, we're all going to stand before the Lord. And you know those things in your life that aren't so good? You're going to give an account for them too. And before you fixate on the speck in your brother's eye, deal with the log that's in your own. And before you fixate on how the day will go for them, consider how it might go for you, particularly if you're not walking in love. So resolve. I will not judge or condemn. I will not place a stumbling block so that they will fall. I will do nothing to grieve or to weigh down or to destroy my brother or my sister, or to destroy the servant. Now, he's already addressed one fundamental truth. For them, Jesus died. And if for them, Jesus died, that takes on a whole different perspective. If at the end of the day, as I differ with them on the application of this or that, as I do this or withhold that, if I say to myself, is this one for whom the Lord of glory left heaven and came down and suffered the torments of the cross for them, then I will treat them as such. But then he makes another argument. And it's an argument about the kingdom of God, about the church, about the community that lives under the law of our king in the most explicit way. What am I saying when I insist on my way in regard, in the context of these matters of food and drink? When I say, and again, when I say, not what they're saying, what I'm saying, when I say this is a hill that I will die on, this is where I will make my stand. I don't care who it offends. I don't care if they leave the church. I don't care if they go anywhere. I don't ultimately care if they go to heaven or hell. And he's saying, that can't be your attitude. And Paul weighs in on this in 1 Corinthians 10, and then this is his application, and then we'll consider in a moment here his theological grounding. Paul says, and this is the text we mentioned before, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks 
So again, depending on what side you're on, don't make this a hill you die on. Give no offense. We're going to eat a kosher diet, and if the Gentiles don't like it, they can go somewhere else. Where else are they going to go? Second Baptist didn't come about yet in Rome. Third Presbyterian or whatever you want to you know, you try to come up with. There was one church there. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things. And here's the mindset. I don't seek my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Not destroyed, saved. So that if there is a way in that context that I can please the Greeks and the Jews because I'm not a slave to myself and to my passions, and because I see the issue clearly as an issue of something I can or that I cannot do, if, if I'm going to weigh somebody down on the one hand or on the other, look, I'm going to try to find a way that I can love all of these people unto the end, that the saving work of Christ might be known among both. That is a kingdom-first mentality, a mentality that understands the nature of what Christ truly came to do among his people, a mentality that understands something of the purpose of the church in the world, and so that what we are to ask ourselves as we think about some of these issues is, what am I saying about the kingdom? Is this what Jesus died for? That Jesus left the glories of heaven so I can eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Now that's really good, and if you don't like it, I feel sorry for you. But no, but that's good. You know, but did Jesus, is the purpose of Christ into the world so that we could eat bacon or pork or buy meat from the idol's temple at the best price. So that what he came to do is, is, is that set me at liberty so that my taste buds and my ease and, you know, have the way. Is that why Jesus died? To make you a selfish man or woman? Of course not. No, he says, remember the kind of kingdom that Jesus brought. It's not a meat and drink kingdom. This, we don't want to be telling, why did the church fall apart? Because of meat and drink. And, and, and boy, we took our stand. Like, like that's a front burner gospel issue. Is that why Jesus left heaven and suffered? So, you know, whatever it is, go watch movies or listen to what, what I want to watch or be full of opinions that make me despise others. Does grace produce a selfish, hateful heart? Does grace produce a condemnatory heart? Or does the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit produce things like, oh, I don't know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control? And as he states it here in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that wherever and whenever the king of kings rules in a heart, he brings about righteousness. All right, so what is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity inwardly and outwardly to the revealed mind of God. It's an embrace of our Christian duty, not of our preferences and liberties. 
And if obedience to the law is what righteousness is, and if the law, fulfillment of the law, is summarized in love for God and love for neighbor, and in a very heightened sense, my Christian neighbor, then a life of righteousness is a life of love. It's a life that doesn't harm a neighbor, as is said in the context. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. And read 1 Corinthians 13 if you're struggling to know what love is and what love looks like. There is no enmity between righteousness and love. They are, in this sense, really truly one and the same. And then he says, peace. The kingship of Christ, where Christ plants his flag and rules and reigns by his grace and by his word, is a place noted for righteousness fulfilled in love or and excuse me and peace peace between God but especially here in the context peace within the church when Jesus is ruling and reigning in his church it's a place of peace the kingdom of God is not a place of internal conflict it's not a place where the saints go to war against each other that's not the kingdom so he's going to go on and we'll come to this God willing Romans 14, verse 19, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. That's a kingdom mindset. That is a I have experienced the mercy of God mindset. Now this righteousness and love and peace go together. It can be easy to say that I must sacrifice certain things for the sake of truth, No, never. You don't sacrifice truth. The truth can and should, in fact, be lived out and spoken with love. Again, this this should not be a contradiction. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is using other truths sometimes as a smokescreen for our pettiness or our selfishness. You can pursue peace and edify your brother and be faithful to every truth of God's word. In fact, in doing that, you are being faithful to the truths of God's word. And there are truths that will offend. There are truths that will cause some people to leave a church. Days will come, they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their itching ears, they will heap up teachers. They're, they're going to they're leave. Yes, that, that may happen. But let it happen for the sake of that truth, not for the sake of my ease. That's, that is what's in view here. And then the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of the gracious master, produces joy in the Holy Spirit. This isn't misery. So it's not, he's not saying, look, if you live this way and you deny yourself for the sake of others, well, you know, just put a pebble in your shoe and whip your back. and li- No, it's not what he's saying. No, this is the way of Holy Spirit joy. We sing a hymn that says these words, a life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. How can I do these things? Why will I want to do these things? Well, ultimately, brethren, because I have a mind in me, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant 
and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this table, the reason why we don't go home, you know, we, we don't just package up the Lord's table and send you home and all of you just eat it in isolation is this is a communion that we have in common together as the body of Christ. And we are showing in this not only the emblems of our peace with God through the body and blood of Jesus, but the reason why we have peace with one another and the reason we love one another and the reason we prefer one another. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, a part of the context that Paul's dealing with here are these divisions that were there in the church, divisions as they came to the table, selfishness that was being seen at the table that brought about the very judgment of God. And he's going to remind them, as he said to them earlier, I, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And so to deal with your pettiness, to deal with your greed, to deal with your selfishness, even here, I'm going to point you afresh to the body and blood of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for these moments together where we can now reflect on the body and blood of our Savior. Thank you for that one who was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen.